You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. go guys here we go another episode of the x-man podcast i'm your host doc coil thank you so much for tuning in as i sit in a business center in a hotel in nashville tennessee realize i should start utilizing these business centers uh, more often because As of late, it's been difficult to uh, find time and space to record stuff for the show. Just finding a a quiet place on tour, like I mentioned, can be quite a challenge. But you have to utilize the resources that you have at your um, at your disposal. Are you know I was doing a lot of stuff on the bus, and then our air conditioning went on the bus, so I couldn't really use that for a while. And then the last few shows, we haven't had dressing rooms, so it's been tough. So right now, you know what? All about the business center, because you know what? I'm the only in this motherfucker doing business. God damn it. Anyway, not too much to report. Uh, I think that's the funny thing when you're, when, you're, when you're on the road. You get like, I kind of mentioned this on the last episode, but yeah, you get a little disconnected from the day-to-day stuff of, of, of what's going on. Um, I find less things that I have these definitive opinions about, but um, you know, I can kind of talk about just little things that have happened. I thought one thing was was worth mentioning. I had a a very uh, funny Twitter exchange. You know, I got to bring up the Twitter. Well, you know, if you guys, by the way, if you're not following me on Twitter, go on Twitter at Doc Coyle. You know, I talk some shit on there every now and again when I find time. Uh, but I saw this guy posted. Uh, this guy runs a blog, whatever. Uh, some 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 blog. Anyway. He, 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 I'm not going to say his, his name, but, uh, <laughs> he posted in flames is opening for the five finger death punch, breaking Benjamin on tour, LMFAO, whatever. So he thinks it's really funny. So this is actually the next leg of the tour bad wolves is doing, uh, the dates we can't do. Cause we're going to be, uh, on a Canadian tour, uh, in flames will be doing those shows, uh, in our slot. And this guy thought that was funny. I was a little confused why he thought it was funny. So I uh, I took a video. I already had a video of me just showing the crowd from that day where me panning around and there's, you know, something like 12,000 people there. And I said, you know, view from the crowd when you open up for Five Me Death Punch or Breaking Benjamin. Sucks big time to play in front of 10,000 people. Also super hilarious. And uh, his response was, 
Yeah, I'd hate to play in front of that many dumbasses. Pretty, pretty sick retort there. And I replied, yeah, you just rock the great halls of MIT, Harvard, and Oxford, I guess. And then he replies, do I look that smart and rich to you? Thanks for the compliment. Uh, then I replied, you said you only play for non-dumbass crowds. I figured I'd shoot for the stars. And my buddy uh, Josh uh, Chachi used to be in, what's the band he was in? Well, I'm going to forget the name. Pop Evil. I'm sorry. Uh, he you know, he kicks, kicks in to just give some positive energy. He says, luckily, you'll never know the hate, LOL. Be pro-music, uh, pro-metal, pro-rap, rock, or asshole i don't really get that bit anyway and then uh this guy re finally replies i'm pro good music and you know and that's where i kind of bowed out from the conversation because i kind of realized uh you know some people aren't really about the conversation it's it's more i gotta own you you know and clearly pro good music that's a subjective statement right uh what's good to one person is not good to someone else there's no way to necessarily uh dictate who 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 is right or wrong about that so i was like you know what this guy it really isn't worth getting into but but the one thing i thought was interesting and the point i was trying to make to him was you know i imagine you know when i looked on his blog saw the stuff and he's like posting about like black metal and shit and it's like i like black metal and stuff but it you know, this goes back to a lot of stuff I used to write about when I was with VH1 was the my personal frustration with elitism in metal. And this guy is the perfect example of an elitist. He thinks his tastes uh, are better than, as he says, the, the dumbasses out there who are going to this this show. And I mean, and that's elitism at its core. And, and and perhaps, you know, maybe if we were actually uh, having an honest conversation, he would argue for the merits of elitism to say, well, yeah, there are dumb people and there are smart people. I'm one of the smart people and this is what we do. And, hey, I'm willing to have that uh, that conversation. I don't doesn't I don't necessarily agree with it. And there's a lot of things I'm picky about or I'm, you know, like when it comes to coffee, for example, like it's like if I going to have coffee, I kind of have to have pretty decent coffee or else I'm just not going to drink it. Um, and I could probably name about five other things I'm I'm like that with, um, and you know, I, and I guess that's the kind of being a connoisseur of a, of a particular thing. And I think there's there's some merit to that. But I think you can do that, right? Like I can like uh, hoity-toity coffee without shitting on people who drink Folgers, and um, and I and I think that's the the, the difference between you know you can have high-minded uh, tastes without disregarding the people who don't necessarily hold those same tastes. And I, and I think that's my main issue with elitism. And the fact you look at a band like In Flames, who I hold in tremendous regard, I wouldn't be where I'm at as a musician without their inspiration. And the fact that they can be 20 plus years into their career and they're in the, in the opportunity to have a great career and can headline across the world but then also can get on arena shows and further ex expose their music to people that wouldn't have otherwise gotten a chance uh, to hear it. What the fuck is so funny about that? It's like, um, there's no, in my opinion, there's no honor in dying on your shield 
um, and being a weekend warrior and playing in front of no one because you were keeping it true. It's like, no, if you have great music and uh, if you feel like you have great music and you have the opportunity to get it out to a wider audience and you can actually make a living while you're doing it, then you're a lucky person, not someone to be um, lampooned. So that's just my little rant for the week. I had to get that out there because you know what? Fuck that dude. And you know, if, if, if you want to say something in my face, you know what I'm saying? You'll get in the streets. You know, I probably won't. I'm not really. I don't do that thing. You know, Doc Coyle will, will, will best you intellectually. Not to the round of fisticuffs, my friend. Mm-mm. That's not how I do it. But one day, I, one day I'm going to learn how to, how to whoop ass. And then I'm like, you know, I should, I should learn, you know, Kung Fu or Taekwondo or MMA. And I know how MMA. <laughs> <laughs> and I know when I say MMA, that just usually means Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But I like saying that. I'm, you know, I'm going to learn MMA. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and then, but secretly, and then put my myself in crime-fighting scenarios where, you know, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't, and, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Then, bam, then whoop, whoop like five dudes' ass at one time because, you know, that would be fun. But that sounds like a lot of effort. I got a bad back. Can you can you learn how to whoop people's asses with a bad back? Someone needs to needs to chime in and and let me know. Anyway, with with my non ass whooping skills, uh, I'm going to talk about this week's sponsor. Uh, it's a band called uh, Devola, and it's actually a solo project by a buddy of mine named Aaron Cloutier. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce his name, and it's funny. Like he has how to pronounce his band, and then I've known this dude forever, and I ne- realized I never said his last name out loud. So maybe it's Cloutier, Cloutier. Anyway, my buddy Aaron, it's his solo band, and um, he says it may appeal to fans of bands like Meshuggah, Strapping Young Lad, and Pantera. And uh, this song, Chains, we're about to play, is from his second album entitled Inherent, which was released independently. So why don't we check out this song entitled Chains from the band Devola. Dispose of the evidence 
Chains, and it's from the band Davola, and that's spelled D-A-V-O-L-A. And you can actually get that song for free if you sign up to their mailing list, and that's www.davolaofficial.com. And my buddy Aaron, he's actually, even though it's a solo project, he is looking for band members. Um, so you can definitely go to check out the website. Um, he's based in New Jersey. So if you're looking uh, to play some rockin' metal, that definitely would be a great band to check out. I actually d- dug that track. There's some really cool riffing and atmospheric stuff. So definitely huge thanks to them for sponsoring the show. If you would like to sponsor the show, you know how to get at me. Send me an instant message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, or you can also drop me an email at the xmanpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that's E-X. And now with the business out of the way, I'd like to do a quick intro for our guest, Tom Bagerwitz, or a.k.a. Tom B. If you don't know, he's the guy who signed, God forbid, to Century Media Records. He was our first A&R guy. And in kind of a in league with the themes of the show, I've been going back and trying to get essentially every person who was instrumental in the career of God forbid and talking to them and getting their take on what happened with the band and their role with the band and also where they come from because, I don't know, it's just kind of like a bucket list thing for me. I really want to go and figure some of this stuff out and see what was going on with people's heads and find out what really happened. And um, and for me, I'd have this nice little oral history for myself and... Um, and I'm really in, in, enjoying it, but I'm not trying to make it too repetitive where it's like every show, it's like, hey, let's retell the God forbid story. I'm trying to space them out a little bit and hopefully you guys find it um, interesting as well because keep in mind, these are also people who've worked with other bands and you get kind of an insider's view into some of these companies and, and how the business works. Um, I would say this would be a bit of a, a tandem episode with the Steve Joe episode because Steve Joe was the 
Centromedia and A&R who took over for Tom B. And so we might go over some of the same things. So like I said, hopefully it's not too repetitive. And um, I really wanted to get Tom for longer, but unfortunately uh, it was on tour. We were in a rush to get out of there. But, um, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe we can get a, a, a part two. We'll see what happens. But with that said, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Mr. Tom Bagerowitz. I've been meaning to speak to you for for quite some time, so I don't know if you've followed the podcast at all. Um, I always see the, and uh, I'm not a big po- podcast person myself, yeah. um, which, like I, I said, very surprising to me with the way your 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 your, your mind thinks and the way just back back there. So we had it was uh, myself, Tom, and then uh, Aiden and Robbie from my other band, Vegas Nerve, and just the way you kind of talk culture, the way you mm-hmm. talk industry the way you you your the right. analytical way you, you kind of look at things you i i feel like um i'm surprised a that you, you don't have one but that you don't consume this you know? well when i um when i'm doing the work i do now uh which is largely designing packaging for, yeah for bands and albums um when i'm doing that i really kind of need ambient music so like oh, yeah you, okay yeah so it's very hard to work to that for me because the talking and oh no the i concepts, can't right. i can't work while i'm doing right. that and then i'm at home all the time because i'm i'm 100 freelance so that's what i do when i'm home yeah. so however my wife she'll download podcasts that she knows i'm gonna like and then therefore when we do long drives because she lives in alabama we do 14 hours on each you know each drive so man the podcasts are huge well, so, I would say for, I love it for that. For me, it's mainly driving and like working mm-hmm. out. That's the, there you the go. those are the those those are those are the two the two times. But the reason why I bring up the podcast itself is just because for my own kind of I don't know, you know, maybe it's beyond just curiosity, but but more kind of to kind of to mend exactly what happened with my former career my former band okay. from from the people who are, who are most involved because even though i for, for the most part i have a relationship and have continued to stay in touch with, with with everyone it's interesting to kind of look back on it and say right what do you think was going on here what what mm-hmm. happened here and okay. it's and it's almost like putting together my little oral history yeah, yeah so anyway yeah. so, I, so I've, I've had the rev our old manager on oh, I've, yes. I've, sp- I've spoken to uh, several members of the band. You know, hopefully, I'll eventually talk talk to everyone. But for those who don't know, and I'll probably talk about it in the intro, is you're the man who signed, God forbid. Yes. Uh, and the year was 2000, which it's funny. The year wow, 2000 man. always sounds like the future. In the year 2000. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Even though it's it's, right. it's 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 so funny. 2000. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so the year two, 2000. So can you tell me how? God forbid, came on your radar mm-hmm. and what you felt. Okay, yeah, what my experience was yes. and how, okay. Um, it's quite simple, actually, for me, on my side of it. There was a um, guy named Alan Douches, uh, who's a mastering guru. He's been mastering, I mean, more records than we could list here. Um, so Alan and I were friends because when I was at Caroline Records and I was creating all the Misfits releases. So was Caroline, it was a record label before it was a distribution company or is it, or does it was distribution first. Caroline is actually um, Richard Branson's niece's name. So Richard Branson Virgin uh, named it after his niece when he wanted, because he was releasing so much awesome shit in the UK. Through Virgin Records. Through 
No, through, well, yes, correct. Through the original version. You're talking about when they were signing sex, trying to sign Sex Pistols. Um, a lot of great um, reggae stuff too. Um, can, like early ambient um, and kraut rock kind of stuff. So he had all this great music in England, but there was no international distribution. So he created Caroline as a sister company in the, in the States in order to basically have a reason to ship tons of records over there and be sold through Caroline. Wait a second. So I just had... Uh, Steve Joe on here, okay. and he worked at Caroline, correct? That's how. Uh, that's that's the reason that Steve took over my job when I left Century Media okay. because we knew each other. All right, so I had I just had Steve on the show. Oh, okay, and that's I awesome. Haven't, but by the time we're talking on this, it will have come out. It will have come out, but it, but it hasn't been released mm -hmm. yet, so people don't don't know that. So anyway, sure. so anyway, anyway, so Caroline. Yes, so Caroline, and so Alan and I worked very closely because I was putting together and creating uh, all the Misfits releases from that time period, the Coffin box set, and we were mixing bonus tracks for Static Age and a lot of Misfits stuff. So he and I worked very closely on all those masters, transferring those and so on. So Alan and I became very close. And then I, when I eventually, I, I went to California after leaving Caroline 97, I went to California, worked for about hmm, less than a year at Revelation Records, was not for me. And then Century Media, Bor Borvoy, left, was leaving Century Media to create Blabbermouth. Yes. So I took that spot to run director of A&R at Century Media. Um, and so I need Alan, to get him on the, on the show. I need to Bory? talk. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, that's for sure. He's quite a, <laughs> I wonder a if he'll, handful. For, for a, running a website called Blabbermouth, uh, you know, he's, he's quite behind the scenes. Yes, he's quite behind the scenes, and um, I wouldn't even say that overly talkative normally, so Blabbermouth no. is kind of a funny no. funny thing He looks that. like he could fuck you up, too. Like, he yes. could break your ankles yeah, or something. Yeah, I had one day with him overlap of, like, training. You know, of, like, okay, where's this and what's that and who's the person in this band and that kind of... And I, he treated me like a piece of shit. Really? Yeah, but I think it's he's always kinda, been nice I to think me. it's be kind of I think <laughs> <laughs> well well, you know, there you go, said something. But I think he's got a I think he thrives on shtick. Yeah. So I think he was giving it to me pretty good. Um which was fine with me. I didn't take it personally. I, I thought he was just kinda having having a, taking a piss okay. in my direction. Sorry. You know? Yeah, so I was fine with that. But um so anyway, Alan, I kind of brought Alan with me because I loved his mastering and he was such a good worker and good prices and all this kind of stuff. Very easy to work with. So Alan calls me, I guess it was 2000. That's what you're saying. Well, no, oh, the really? actual no, the record act was yes. done in, in 99, but right. when we signed the deal, it was 2000. Okay, right, right, right. Because that record was just being mastered by Alan. Yes. So I think you guys basically said to Alan, you know anybody you can send this to? Yeah. You know, you got any contacts? Well, reject it was the God Forbid album Reject the Sickness, our first Co LP. Uh, yeah, first full length. Yes, and, which we were doing for a friend's label, very small, just one guy, actually two guys technically, uh, yeah. called Nine Volt Correct. Discs. Yeah, and that was pretty standard at the time. Like, it wasn't a big deal to me that this wouldn't be the record that you could lead to that. And I think that was actually a good place for you guys because. When you hear something like that, you're kind of, yeah, you're all excited about that material, but I'm of the mindset where I'm going, if you can do that now, imagine what you're going to do next. And that's yeah. what we have to be part of. So all that nine volt stuff, that was cool. But Alan literally called me. And the thing with Alan and I's relationship was all Alan had to do was say, I'm going to send you this. It's mm -hmm. good. And that's all that matters. Was that something that happened semi off? No, no. That's the only time I've ever had Alan contact me. Wow. Like that. So I was, okay, so essentially you gotta imagine on every day, I get tons of 
submissions as an A&R director. So, and honestly, I don't have the time because I'm trying to maintain a roster, as you know, that Century Media roster big. was huge because of Europe and Robert signing. And man, they were, it was a signing frenzy. So if my job actually was to limit the roster and only sign select. So I was pretty picky about it. And I'll tell you what, he, he asked if he could send it to me. I said, send it to me. I'll listen to it right away because as, as, as our, as friendship, I want to, you know, pay attention. I get back to him. And I, I honestly, I got it, whatever, a couple days later. And, you know, even though I've gotten hundreds of packages before that, you know, this one goes straight into player. And I knew in 30 seconds that I was signing this. Can I swear like a mother? You can say motherfucker. Okay, good. Okay. I knew. Pussy juice. <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'll go there, but I knew within 30 seconds I was signing this fucking band. Wow. And it was easy to me. It was, it was a fucking cakewalk. Now you have to think about the context. The only, only way to talk about anything like this is to understand the context of the time. Okay. What was going on? So you, it was very difficult to sell any quantity of albums at that point in underground indie metal. Hate Breed was one of the only ones to sell. Can I kind of real quick? Yeah, this yeah. is more of a, a curiosity thing. So I asked Steve Joe this and maybe you can actually mm -hmm. illuminate because he wasn't totally sure. At the time, who was the biggest central media band in America? Stuck Mojo. Stuck Mojo. Okay. Yes. And you're talking. And then, what, like 50,000 records? Uh, maybe. High 40s, something. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. The sound scanned when it mattered, you know, when it was, you know, more of a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember Hatebreed worked our asses off. Perseverance? You know? No, this was no. Uh, uh, Satisfaction yeah, of the Death of Desire. Right. And that, so that album came out, I think, 98. Yeah, and that record was selling. And that got, that got to 100. Well, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but through years of touring. Yeah, it was about two years. Two yeah, years two years of, plus. Of, it, it, was, it, was like, it was like a slow-moving Correct, kind but of consistent and, and just, yeah, rolling down the hill and catching some momentum. Slipknot came out. I think that was a big thing. They scanned 15,000 first week. And at that point, that was just unheard of. I mean, with no past history. So that was a big deal. So it was very hard to sell records. I'll, I got numbers specifically I can drop as far as Shadows Fall goes because I had signed them before you guys. Shadows Fall, first record, 10,000 in a year. And that of was One Blood. Of, of One Blood. And that was a big success for us. 10,000 records in a year. Okay. Second record, 10,000 in a month. Third record, 100,000 in a month. Yeah. That was that shift and roll. So you're talking, I tried, I called Mike and Killswitch and tried to, you know, to get them off the demo. They had already signed the one record deal with Carl and Ferret. And then the other Roadrunner was already sniffing because Lamb was signed to Prosthetic. Yeah. I had signed you guys and Shadows Fall. And honestly, so, that's but, the four. That's the big four. But essentially, you know, to kind of interpret, I think what you're saying is, Hatebreed set this standard of what was, and there was a turning of the tide, yeah. and you saw the changing of the guard, and that this this underground thing was kind of moving into this, maybe not we wouldn't say mainstream, but no. but something commercially viable. Yes, it it was a mixture of, and I and I and I coined this because I'm old enough to have known the first wave of this called the new wave of British heavy metal. But to me, this was the new wave of American heavy You're metal. You're saying you coined new wave of oh, American yeah, heavy I metal. Oh yeah, I did. And Do it, we have some kind of literary proof of it's this? It's possible. You'd have to probably get like the sales sheets for Shadows Fall of One Blood, things like that. Okay. But I was putting that stuff in there because I grew up 
Def Leppard, Maiden. This is breaking news. I don't think I've ever broken. A well, bit the of thing history. is, is that most people, of course, most of bands hated it. Not I, me. Well, you I know. know. Why, you know why I didn't hate it? Why? Because we didn't. You don't want to be called metalcore. Well, that's for sure. Because we right. wanted. We wanted, and I think. Uh, I think the only band out of those four that embraced met, the metalcore tag was Killswitch. Uh, yeah, they were a different beast of the four for sure. Well, I well, I just I literally remember an interview right when Alive or Just Breathing came out with Adam, oh. where he said, "Well, I guess you can call us metalcore, but whatever you can call us, whatever." Yeah. Where he was pretty blasé right. about it, but I think for us at the time, I guess when we were signed, we were okay being called metalcore. Right. But by the time Determination came out, yeah, you evolved. We just, you know, our. You know, the, the, probably the biggest influence on that record was the Haunted self-titled, mm. their, their debut oh, album. Oh, man, and really good. we were listening to Arch Enemy, we were listening to mm -hmm. In Flames, and, yes. and we we felt that that was more of like the gold standard yes. of where metal was going, yes. and a lot of the American stuff just didn't seem as advanced. Correct. So we wanted more to be in that club than to be like an all-out war which i wouldn't i love all-out war but we felt like we were going someplace different yes and then that's why that's why i was very attracted to the scene because i was super into hardcore but i was a metal kid yeah so it is this combination of of thrash uh scandinavian swedish beat and, down, beat and, down. And, yeah and then and then yeah just uh literally being able to play new brunswick <laughs> and fucking scissor kicks you know what i mean and so yeah it was a it was a beautiful combination of things and i think that's very hard because we live in a world where creatively how does one okay you have ellsworth kelly and art white canvas then you have a uh, jackson pollock pure chaos then you have a music you'd have something like uh john cage you know a symphony of silence and then you have like the boredoms and noise japanese noise core and it's just an assault of everything. Those are the far lefts and the far right of creativity from nothing to everything. Mm -hmm. So now that we've done that in society, how the hell do you navigate within those two corridors? Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this unique combination of influences. And that was this wave of American <laughs> heavy metal is that, was that to me. And I was very proud that oh my god the day they finally i got wind that the headbangers ball tour that headbangers ball tour came together it was basically like, this is this is my tour yeah it like, was it was almost like having you know how the clash of the titans tour mm -hmm. with kills with um megadeth yes. slayer um anthrax that was kind of the in a way the end of thrash yeah but for us it was the exact opposite that tour kind of was, was, the, was the beginning correct of of that that move especially for us because it was it was difficult at that time because we had been grinding out for about a year or two years at that at that yes. point on determination and feeling like we kind of weren't where we wanted to be so we had to almost reintroduce ourselves to this new this audience that had arrived because all the all the other bands were taking off yeah you know it was very but anyway i feel like i'm getting a little a little okay. ahead of myself um okay so anyway alan sends me this like literally 30 seconds into the first track i know it i called you guys yes um, i remember so i got the call so this is this is just crazy so wow, as far okay. as i remember it okay so i you you were on the phone okay all right. yeah i think i took the call or dallas one, one mm -hmm. of us and all i remember was basically <laughs> you saying hey i'm i'm Tom B. I'm from Century Media Records, right. and 
as plainly as possible you saying we want to sign the band right like and and i try to explain that to people and just to say that that doesn't happen like it it doesn't or or as far as i've known that where and and the reason why i say that is because it's important to talk about where we were at as a band before that we hadn't toured right we were not uh necessarily business savvy or had any real concept of <laughs> no of, of an actual yeah. business it was never really we never thought about things on that level we were just more like all right we're in new jersey let's do some shows in jersey hey we can get a show in new york let's go to new york there was we did right. not have goals that lofty right so it was and and the fact and the, the biggest thing i thought was interesting and maybe you can answer me this is you guys never you signed us before you saw the band live correct what was the was there chatter about that about hey we need to see this band we need to talk to this band we don't know can they pull this off do they look like a bunch of goofballs on stage like what um sure yeah i understand that i think for me um i try and do things differently so if i would approach something like early on um i was talking about this with my friend earlier tonight that early on in the music industry you come in and you see people that are complete dicks and they're huge and successful. And mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, maybe I should be a dick. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon. From Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. When but was then, it, at, at that time? No, like coming up in the years before when I first got into the industry, 93 or so, and you start coming in, you're like, I should just be a dick. You know what I mean? You're just like, take no shit. Like don't... David Caruso and Jade. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Anything Caruso. Okay, so yeah, but I decided I'm not going to do that and I want to approach something different. And, and when it came to misfit stuff, I, I learned cutting my teeth like, nope, I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to listen to anybody else, blah, blah, blah. And so when it came to signing that band, I mean, your band, it was just, it was easy to me. And so, okay, live, no, I don't even know when the first time it was that I saw you live. It didn't even matter to me. I don't know either. And you guys sent me a tape though. Oh, like a video of us? Yes, of live. And I want to say it was in Brunswick. Yeah. Um, at, you know, one of the halls. You know what I think it was? It probably was when we opened for Hatebreed. It, I feel like that was what, what we showed you. Okay. I, could, I could be wrong. I don't know. It was short. It was a few songs. Yeah. Um, and it was a videotape that was sent out. And of course, one of the first things I also remember was, yeah, somebody, uh, I think it was Dallas, ended up mentioning me like, oh yeah, and four or five of us are black. And I was like, didn't see that coming, didn't know, <laughs> you know? And I love that. And I had worked with the Bad Brains on their Black Dots record yeah. at Caroline. And of course, to Ian McKay, to Henry Rollins, to guys like that in DC, that record is God. Yeah. And you think about, and the reason they were called Black Dots is because in a sea of white. And it's a challenge. And so all of a sudden, but that excited me because I want to do things, I wanted to do things, and I still want to do things that are different. Yeah. That challenge people, that offer something that's unique. And so it only added to it. I already knew I wanted to sign it. That was just like, okay, cool. And what else? And so you sent me the live tape. So I knew you could play. I remember one of the comments and, and it just... It, the thing about doing A&R is that to me, I liken it to that I'm uh, doing some pottery or whatever, right? And I'm making it as beautiful as I can. It's caking on, you know, putting the kiln and I paint it and glaze it and it's gorgeous. Making the record is the analogy, right? Yeah. Right mastering, the right artwork, the right sound, the right producer, the right studio, the right situation, making it as beautiful as I can. But you know, I got another record to do the same thing to next. Right? Mm -hmm. So when I turn around, I have to kind of hand that off. So I have to make it as beautiful as possible. And most of the time I'd hand it off and it would just smash on the floor is what I'd hear. You know, just wouldn't take off. Nothing would work. Does that make sense? You mean from an A&R perspective? From an A&R perspective. I would make the You mean record, handing it to the, the staff, marketing people, marketing staff, the radio people. And, yeah, and you have to let it go. Of it's course. now theirs. And you have to rely on them as a band and, and a publicist and marketing, you know? And is, is that because you think that's a failure of um, perhaps the infrastructure of the label, in, inability for people to kind of work together in a way that's streamlined? Sometimes. And sometimes it's just not the right person in the right position. Okay. You know, that. So was that your, so you, so something that's, that's really fascinating. So to kind of give a little context to it. So originally when we were talking to Central Media, uh, you guys wanted to actually put out Reject the Sickness. We're going to license the record. Yeah, it was, uh, yes, we could license it from Bolt. I remember from, that. From, from Vault. Yeah. And essentially, 
uh, Brian, who who had signed the band, he felt emotional, I think, about what happened, and he felt essentially like his band was being poached. So well, he right. so, and the, the thing that's really ironic is, so we were actually supposed to help pay for um, reject the sickness, and I think it was about six or seven thousand dollars is what it cost, okay. and. We the we didn't come through on our end, so so Brian ended up having to pay. I think for all or the bulk of it, which we felt bad about, but we were just broke and just it was yeah. a kind of embarrassing. Literally, I was like in high school basically the year right. before that, so I didn't. I was terrible with money. Oh, you were that young, really? yeah, pretty young. Oh, wow. I was not. I was nineteen. Basically. See, I didn't ask those questions. I was eighteen, either. I right? Really so, <laughs> yeah. and I think you guys made an offer for ten thousand okay. dollars to buy the record, so he would have made basically fifty percent. Yeah, made over, all his money back and plus a plus plus, yeah. plus a little mm-hmm. more, right? And Again, and I th- and I think he wanted maybe fifteen or twenty or something. Like he was like, oh, whatever they're gonna. And so you guys end up saying no. Right. Well, all right. So you so you turn it down. And it, what bothered us about it was he only ended up pressing three thousand copies, I think. Uh-huh. And reject the sickness on a national scale really did not get a push. Correct. And it and what what bothered me about that was that when Shadows Falls record came out. Uh-huh. And when Lamb of God's records came out, mm-hmm. we were a lot of the press and the way people review the record was like, oh, these guys are kind of doing what Shadows Fall is doing. Correct. And because, so essentially they got the launch first. So we right. didn't kind of get the I think if that record would have came out, I'm not saying that the band would have been bigger or. or I understand. But, but I think the narrative yes. would have been shifted as that this is the band that's actually changing the sound of right. of underground music and, and i believe that as well i knew you were doing that um right. so and i think and partially what what happened after that too was because of that we had just finished reject the sickness yeah. and we signed a deal and it was like all right you have to write a whole new record you know yeah that's true and and that was kind of we were kind of under we basically pushed ourselves creatively right to to kind of hit a, a point where it was like all right we need to kind of grind something out so determination away kind of became this situation of a band really put like when we felt like the the drain like there was nothing left creatively like pushing through so i think that's part of the reason why that record came out so interesting in a way like yeah. like there's definitely it's i don't think it's a perfect record or anything but there's right. something kind of cool oh, and yeah. artistic and vibey about it because right. we were just like all right we have to make another record and it i don't know it's kind of interesting, it's interesting it didn't how- sound like reject yeah uh, the actual production of it and performance of it it was very uh, i don't know more technical than i expected it to be very yeah. tight yeah um so that's why, to be honest, if we want to take a step further, that I was fucking thrilled beyond belief with Gone Forever, of course. Yeah. You know, I just, you know, I was beside myself. I was also very happy to also work with you guys again because I ended up designing a package. And, and I know I showed you at some point you saw, which is I think where we connected on Instagram yeah. even, even, was my original sketch for Travis and to kind of put this piece together. Because- yeah, I think we had zero notes about Gone Forever about what the artwork would be. It yeah. was kind of just like, I literally don't know how it came together, but I didn't realize I guess it was you. Yeah. But there's something we should talk about before that. Yeah. So, you know, Tom, I remember one of the things like when we were before the record came out and um, or before we went into the studio, 
you were kind of like almost coaching us through mm -hmm. the process of like, all right, we're going to make the record and we're going to set this up. And he's like, you're going to like it. It's, it's actually really fun doing this stuff and getting everything, doing the press and getting the artwork. And, and we were also working closely with the Rev, our manager, yeah, and everyone was really involved in, and invested. It was, it was a really cool time. And essentially, I think right around the time we finished Determination, you quit. Mm. Century Media. I Records. think it was even before that, but yeah. Was it before? Um, yeah, I think I even got the demo from Steve for the record. Yeah. So you left even before that. So yeah. what was now? And and so the thing that was very flummoxing, I guess, from from my perspective, is at no point did you never not seem uh, enthusiastic or passionate about what was going on. So right. obviously, we don't know. And I'm maybe from maybe you almost telegraphed it before by saying. Hey, I handed off my baby, and they they yeah. they drowned the baby. Right. So is that what was going on? Yeah, there was some of that for sure. Um, there was also the bludgeoning of sign, sign, sign going on in Europe, and then releasing these bands, and just a clogged release schedule that made it hard to develop an act. I wanted to develop an act. I wanted to develop, God forbid, Shadows Fall to be the next Metallica's. That's what I want. Now, not Metallica Black Album level. I didn't care about that. But to really make an impact and but change the scene. But you did see, you, you, did, saw. you saw the bands selling hundreds of thousands yes. of records. Are oh. these bands in particular happening? Yeah. yeah. That's what I wanted out of it. But to do that is not to shove it out and then follow it up with six releases the next month on the label. Yeah. It didn't matter to me. It, did, it was having a publicist who only liked power metal, European power metal, and had no clue about where to take these records. You know, so yeah, it was frustrating, okay? So that's fine, but the other thing is, is that, okay, I'll tell you why I left, in a nutshell. I started to, and other than what I signed and what I was passionate about, started to kind of despise music. It was a job. And, it, I, and music. I, the only reason All I got- All music. Yeah, the reason I got into music was because of how much I love it. Yeah. Right. So now I'm starting to like, can't stand it. Didn't even want to go into work anymore. It was just wearing me down. And that's a, not necessarily just a century media thing, but it was the grind of making it a business. And how long have you been doing that particular job at that point? Well, well only a couple of years. Really? So yeah. you're just, you were burning, I mean, yeah. burning I, well, fast I was, and bright. Yeah. I mean, I was in there, you know, you get in there early um, because you got Europe to speak to and then we're in LA for God's sake. So you yeah. got like a, whatever, nine hour, eight, nine hour difference, things like that. So you're in early and you're just grinding out. Bands are going out till 3 a.m. to yeah, hang out after shows. Mm -hmm. I'm getting older. The bands keep staying the same age. You know, you get that <laughs> reference. All right. So, you know, so it was getting tiresome and wearing on me. The other thing was, is that so uh, Marco Barbieri mm -hmm. at the time, a GM uh, at uh, Century Media at that time and for years to come, he was running a magazine called Ill Literature, right? And I was starting to design for him and kind of cut my teeth on more design work, which is what I went to college for, is what I really wanted to do. But music was a great day job, it was incredible. So then I'm doing this design stuff and then Maiden gets back together, if you will. Dickinson and Adrian Smith come back in the fold. I'm out of my mind for this, you know, just beyond thrilled. Marco's like, you want to do the interview for the cover story? I'm like, yes, I do. So I could finally sit down with Bruce Dickinson. So on a, I think it was a Monday. Uh, I get to sit down with Dickinson. I have 30 minutes with him. We have a mutual friend, if you remember Roy Z. Mm -hmm. Okay, producer, of course, songwriter with Bruce yeah, and, on the solo, and Halford the solo stuff. and all that stuff. Right. So down set, all that stuff. So 
you know, we had a great time. I actually did an A&R interview with Dickinson about doing the record. Mm -hmm. So he was like, okay, this is different than just asking me about old past stuff and whatever. So we had a great time. And I, oh my God, I went, I went straight to back to Century Media after that interview. And I was like, on oh, a fucking cloud nine. This is what I got into music for, Dickinson. And by the way, I was taller than him. I couldn't believe it. It was just, he was just so cool. It was great. And then I reminded myself why I hated music. Because I went back to the office and it was all bullshit. Yeah. And I was like, see, no, Dickinson's why I got into it. He's one of the many reasons. See, that's funny. That so I imagine that would inspire you to become like a journalist or something. Well, yeah, it inspired me. Well, I had just been really developing the design thing, cutting my teeth. So that's really kind of where I saw myself going, because that's my my gift, if you will. Okay, yours is music, mine is that. You know that. So okay, so I kind of realized. Well, it's not music that I hate; it's the business that I hate. Okay. Next day, I called in sick and uh, looked on monster.com, dating myself, putting it back to 2000. And I found this ad for designing a prototype for a music magazine, of a movie magazine. And uh, after hours, that kind of thing, I did like a week with this guy, English guy, great dude. We had a great time, it was like three hours a night after my day job at Century Media. And comes to the end of the week, he's like, we didn't even talk about money. And I said, ah, I threw a number at him. He goes, no, 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 no. He paid me five times that amount. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And this is the first time in my life. I got Caroline. I did the fucking Misfits coffin box. We were making so much money off this stuff. The bands were making so much money, recouping all that we paid out on this. It was just a great run, all that. And Caroline came to me and offered me, I think, a $5,000 a year raise for living in Manhattan, by the way. And you dilute that across 52 weeks. That's not shit, yeah. right? It's, well, I, I mean... I've spoken about this on the show before, but I'll say it again, especially in the heavy music realm, heavy mm -hmm. metal, the people that are there are not there for money. They're there because they love it. Exactly. They, lo they love the culture. And unfortunately, the people at the top of that tend to take advantage of the fact that right. people would almost do it for free because yeah, yeah, they, yeah, love, yeah. they love it so much. That also came at the expense of talent because yes. you would take somebody who would take crap pay and you're not getting the best people but that's another residual of event, course uh, of effect course. of that but for me um this guy standing there in front of me a stranger all of a sudden like really seeing what i offer and not trying to lowball me and not trying to rake me for everything i'd have to go to century media and, and ask for two thousand dollars a year raise after a few years of you know signing the right bands that are going to eventually move us out of a house into a 50 person facility mm -hmm. you know within three years it's about you're, you're talking about value someone yeah. someone actually not only valued valued you in a sense of giving you verbal validation they proved their the way right, they value right. you. yeah it wasn't just about money yeah. but it was making me feel valued yeah. right it's a it's a, it's reaffirming and it's this money is a symbol of course for, for that. right right but even or so are benefits and so is talking to me like a human being and blah 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 so it just didn't work for me anymore at that time and that sucked because yeah i mean i wanted to see these things through i wanted to have the freedom i wanted to be able to be given the opportunity to develop help develop these you know you guys mm -hmm. and shadows fall and you know so didn't come about but here's here's the thing you came back <laughs> i did i so, forgot how bad it was you forgot how that's bad it, how was. it was that's how it was yes. but i i have to say so so something really i think pivotal for for god forbid in particular and for me in particular was it was a time when we had split 
with the Rev yep. as a manager. Yes. And you helped usher through the the Constitution of Treason yeah. making of of that uh-huh. record. And I'm extremely proud of that record. Yeah. And it might be the most focused and kind of, kind of am- ambitious. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, we wrote it quickly. We recorded it fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And it was all. It was also the t- the kind of confluence where I think we had the most people at the label uh, in America and internationally yes. all invested right. all at the same time. And right. we saw it. I mean, we sold, I think, 40,000 records of that within maybe the first two mm-hmm. and a half months or yeah, something. Sure. Yeah. Uh, had great momentum, but you were really involved with, you were there in the studio helping yes. us work on the intro, the intro helping, yeah. you know, yeah. um, help us do the, the documentary yeah. uh, por- por- portion of it. And I think that had, a, and because we didn't have a manager at time, in a sense, you were kind of almost the de facto manager of the band, yeah, yeah. Uh, helping us put together that tour with the Haunted and yeah, the Sugar. Yeah, Haunted and the Sugar. Oh man, that um, tour. That, that yeah, the Halloween. Well, yeah. well it, I mean, it saved the launch of the record yes. because we didn't have a tour. Yeah, I think the, yeah, I think I kind of created that thing and then worked it with Decibel. It was with Decibel, wasn't it? I believe I think so. It was a Decibel yeah. tour. We had, we had the cover Decibel. And that launched, yeah, that helped yeah. launch that record. So we had, we had, we had a lot go- going on. Yeah, 2005, at, 2006. Yeah. yeah, but I I imagine if, you know, I mean, the truth is, you know, what an A&R person does, I think means a lot of different things to different Correct. people, depending yes, on the does. label and your resources mm-hmm. and the type of person. Yeah. But you were very hands-on and, you know, I never got to thank you so much for kind of, because I, I, I'm really proud of the work that was done on that, yes. on that, on that record and that, and that, that launch. Um, so I think that was incredible. So thank you so much for, for the, for the work you did on that. Oh, Cause course, I think, man. you know, that's one of the records I think to this day, people still has an impact, still right. matters, you know, to a, to a, to a lot of people. Yeah. I see the records before that is very kind of punk rock in a way, yeah. um, to compared to that record record, uh, as far as the sound, the maturity, the arrangements, all the things that you've been kind of teasing on the previous records, different backing vocals, all the kind of things really kind of gelled in that mature fashion. All those ideas really kind of hit their peak, I think at that point, no doubt. So, but you still didn't, end up sticking around that much longer same right? shit different different year yeah yes so from the business side yeah yeah i loved uh, the two bands well three bands of course i worked with the most during that period were you guys shadows fall and lacuna yeah and enjoyed are, everybody and i guess outside of arch enemy those are probably the the most successful bands in the, the states at least correct at, at the time correct you know yep um so one of the kind of interesting things and this is the i guess the the dissection part of this take taking okay. apart do, doing the autopsy a little bit all right is ironically that was the peak of the band the Mm -hmm. biggest record sales the biggest chart positions we were getting big tours and stuff but kind of struggling behind the scenes from a uh infrastructure standpoint Mm -hmm. and who our manager was who our agent was and for some reason you know hopefully i'll get tim bohr who was our agent at the time ended up almost you know wanted to drop the band and we were we couldn't get on sounds the underground all these things this idea of momentum Correct. Right. And for some reason, all I saw was, man, we're taking we're going to be the next band. We're, and but in a sense, that's when kind of the bottom fell out. Do you have any idea or, or any theories about why do you think the industry side seemed to kind of give up or throw the towel in on a on the or not see that the band was moving forward or could move forward or do or, I, I got to tell you, it was an endless source of frustration for me because 
you know, if somebody, like you said, calls you after listening to the record one time, didn't even see you and go, I want to sign the band. I mean, you know, obviously I was in, yeah. all in. And But we were changing a lot to a lot of people. They might not even see the the similarities between that band and what Constitution I, but, was. But you have, yeah, my job is to see an evolution or believe in evolution. I mean, you guys couldn't finish a record without literally calling me and telling me about the ideas for the next record. Yeah. And you, we haven't even gotten a master yet yeah. for the current one. And I, that can be annoying for certain people, but for me, I was excited about that because again, on a daily basis for what I do, it, there's, again, we talked about this earlier this evening on the bus, it's that that's the challenge. What's the next step? What can we do? Yeah. You guys were talking, I remember at one point, you were talking about an eight minute album ender with basically inviting all of your lead guitarist friends to just riff solos, like throughout the last four minutes of the song. I don't even remember that. <laughs> see, now see, but see, you were saying that to me the day you were handing in the master for the current record. Yeah. That didn't have that. There was a constant push. Now, why the band never took off in that big sense, which is what you're asking me. Now, realistically- But I mean that particular, that time- I where, know. Where it seemed like the trajectory was yes, one way. but only two of those bands took that trajectory and kept running. Of course, yeah. Kill Switch and Lamb. Well, it depends how you look at it because you had the bands who came out right after us, who did really well, As Are They Dying, Trivium, I'm talking about the initial wave. The initial wave. Okay. I'm not. I'm. Yeah. I think anything for me. I mean, I. I'm still seeing ninth generation now of the yeah. same record, the same music style that I was signing twenty some years so the, ago. So the idea is essentially that there, in the aggregate, there was probably only so many who were going to get through to that yeah. because you know I. It's funny, John Berklin. I said this on. I think I said it on the show we did together, but we were on tour together. Uh, us and Devil Driver. Mm -hmm. It was like 2007 on that that cycle, yeah. and we're like staying up to like five in the morning, getting drunk. He's like, you know what it is about Lamb and Killswitchman? They're just better than us. <laughs> they, and I was and I was sitting there, I was like, yeah. <laughs> there's 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 an appeal that uh, obviously you have the more brutal groove of a Lamb, and it just latched on. I think people were looking at them, and especially in a. Uh, kind of post Pantera yeah, world. Yeah, they were right? that band. The they, man. Had, they had, it. listen, it's, They're, yeah. Campbell, Campbell broke it down. He was, you know, and this is, he was actually talking about Chimera at, at, at the time. Okay. Um, who I love and I had those guys on here, but he's like, I think he was talking about Download Festival or why they were booked or something at a certain level. And he's like, listen, man, we just got the magic. Yeah, you can't you can't explain yeah. a lot of things. Yeah, right. some some bands just They're, have the yeah. magic. I even right. look at what's happening with Bad Wolves right now. There's nothing, one particular thing or something. It's just it's right. just for some reason people are intangibles that yeah. people latch on to. Yeah, I don't right. Know. Yeah, because when we did uh, Shadows Fall, Lamb, and Slipknot, and it was Arena. Oh, I remember you talking about this. Okay, and then you're talking about. Um, who's getting the support slot and who's getting the opening slot of Shadows Fall and Lamb. And Shadows Fall had made a couple tour decisions that didn't pay off. And so their numbers, Not if you good. will, because it comes down to numbers, didn't look nearly as good as Lamb. No. Lamb, I think, did Fear Factory, Lamb, and somebody else. It was Bodum. Yeah, there you go. And, and they man, sold out just everywhere. packed the same venues that then Damage Plan, Shadows Fall, and I don't remember. The Haunted. Yes. Not 1998 haunted, but no. nonetheless, okay. That Re bill Re revolver, and went, revolver. Yes, around. yeah, and went through the same rooms, and we're doing half the business. Yeah, and so therefore, every night, Lamb gets that better support slot and more money, 
and things start to shift that way. Subtle movements that, that sometimes there's tangibles like that that I can put my finger on. And then there's other times of like with you guys, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many dozens of times in conversations with other people about the industry going, I have no fucking idea why God forbid yeah. it was not. I'm not saying as reaching gold status, but why it didn't reach 150, 200, 250,000 records because the talent level, I believe, and I know, in fact, okay, I'm gonna swipe the word believe off this or think or any of those words. I fucking know your band was better than most any other band. That yeah. tour of Headbangers Ball Tour 2003, when on the leg you guys had, the half of the leg that you guys had the opening slot on, when it was Forbid, Kill Switch, Shadows Fall, and Lamb of God, it didn't get any better than that. Those were the fucking four. That yeah. was it. And so I expected all four to break. So at every given time, when something just wasn't clicking and wasn't making that moment, it was intangible, dude. I honestly have no way of coming up with an answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I've, even through doing something like this show, I've, I've definitely come to peace with everything. And that's kind of working through, through the, through the process, almost to the point where I'm wondering, like, should I keep doing shows like this of, of examining it? But I still think it's, I find that the story interesting right. and it's, I, and I know and I, I want the people who were there who had a perspective I just couldn't have had right? and kind of get their side of the story because it's, you know, I want people to, cause I get to have the conversation with you. You can tell me, but not necessarily everyone who's not distinctly involved will really know these things. Of course. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of these like random bits and stories i remember going to the studio for constitution walking in you know because you know i came in on my own from the west coast and you guys were already there i remember coming in and in the lobby you guys had uh chappelle was hot as fuck at the time I was right when and he was out. doing like prior i mean uh eddie murphy yeah. at the time and oh my god you guys were just out of your minds like losing it for this shit and that was all over the place and and just talking about video ideas and, and visuals and, and working with Travis was a lot of fun on those records, Travis Smith. Um, By the not, way, I'm the one that did sketches for that. that now record. that, yes, that <laughs> we had sketches for the Statue of Liberty. I did that. Yeah. yeah, but then, you know, trying to, my job always was, again, I wasn't gonna be designed, well, I mean, I design, laid out those records out, but yeah. art directing, like trying to make it right, trying to get Travis to do certain things and what the vibe should be. And I love the look and feel of that record. Plus, it's just, you, you're the one that got, got us hooked up with Clay, Patrick McBride. Yes, and oh, that shoot, that was dude, cool. such a good, that's probably the best photo shoot we ever did. I, I would I would think so. And I, I would think it'd be hard to beat regardless of what he's you've done. He's the best. Yeah, he's fantastic. We had a great a great relationship. I, I think before that, the reason I had a relationship was uh, hired him to shoot Lacuna. Yeah. And so we did a shoot with Lacuna, so I was able to be there with him, which I was not for your shoot. But he and I got to hang out all day. I, I look over his shoulder, but I'm not judging. I'm not commenting. He's his art. He's doing his thing. And uh, we had a great shoot in this old hotel called the Alexandria Hotel, which was kind of weird, shoddy living, old school kind of junkies and weirdos. But it was beautiful. Great relationship. Guys, so talented. And he took those phenomenal photos, recreating RFK and JFK in the Oval Office um of jay-z oh yeah yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. so great stuff um and kanye so doing those kind of shoots so then it came to doing a shoot with you guys and he was 
yeah, man, I still I still can see those images. That's how good they were in my head. Yeah. All right. So we have a few oh. more. We have a few more minutes to wrap this up. Unfortunately, I usually with a guy like you, I know me and you could probably do an hour and a half, two hours. Just, oh, yeah. Just, and just, other stuff and whatever. Yeah. Just 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 shooting the shit. So, you know, just to kind of wrap up real quick. Um, so you leave Centra Media again. And then yes. this is when you go full bore into design, into design. Yeah. And move back to the East Coast. Um, eventually, I still spent a couple more years out West Coast uh, in L.A. I um, had been doing freelance in between the first stint when I signed you guys. I moved to Alabama, lived there for several years, made some contacts at my friend Jason worked at EMI and Capital. So I started doing some work for them freelance design wise. And um, so then the day I was quitting, Century Media in 2006, I sent out an email blast like, I'm looking, I'm out, you know, kind of thing. Got a reply from somebody at Capitol right away, said they're looking for a designer in the catalog department. So old retro classics, greatest hits, things like that. And uh, interviewed and got the job. So I worked out of the Capitol Tower mm-hmm. in Hollywood for several years and loved that. Nat King Cole's pianos downstairs, um, you know, just in that spirit of that classic building. So that was cool. And then, um, in 2000, well then it, yeah, I think 2008, I moved back here to Lancaster where we're doing this, um, at Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that's where I'm from. So I've lived here ever since and taught at the college here in the city. What were you teaching? Design, typography. Um, I also created some classes called Type as Art and also Art and Agitation, which is where you can use your artwork to call, you know, push for a cause or piss people off or get a movement going or attention going to something unique and uh, right or wrong the best you can, you know, through your talent and art. Mm-hmm. So doing classes like that. But I've been freelancing design and photography uh, all the while. And now I'm 100 percent that I quit teaching several years ago. The millennials were killing me. Can you uh, uh, give us a little bit of background or tell us about this magazine you have out? Unbuilt. Is it's it out? Magazine. It is out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're doing we're working on our fifth issue. Um, and it's called Unbuilt. It's an idea that I had uh, on my own, uh, incubating this crap ideas on my own at my own home. And uh, eventually it was to work with musicians, but not talk about music per se. Yeah. It was social, political, uh, lifestyle, culture. I did bug you to let, to, to let Doc Cole write an article and say, I got turned down. Like, no. Well, yeah, it's um, <laughs> it, it ended now. Up, it's Doc Cole from Bad Wolves. Maybe I get in that motherfucker now. <laughs> maybe so. Uh, <laughs> man, I'm getting, getting punched over here. All right, so hey, man, I got got to bust some balls. I man. hear you. All um, right, it's fair. Gotta, um, gotta give you the boy treatment. You know? There you go. Thank you. My, my one <laughs> on day, the way out the door. One day out the door. Exactly. Um, so uh, eventually, I had all these people lined up for it, including Randy Bly and uh, Alex Skolnick. So. The three of us kind of were, were stable, and then we had some other people who were committing to be involved, and then other very, very you know high quality names and musicians, and they would just their schedules would go crazy, and then you know everybody panics and they walk away. And I understood that, you know, it's an undertaking. And all but eventually, Alex I think emailed Randy and I and just was like, "Hey, uh, Randy and I were talking, and we're still here, so why don't the three of us just do this shit?" So I was like, fuck it. So I took the next 12 hours or something, revised the whole concept and that we could do it together. So Unbuilt is something that I design. We each select the articles and topics ourselves. So 
you don't really kind of mess with that if somebody wants to touch something. How many issues are out? This is going to be the fifth we're going to do for the fall. So we're writing it now. Things are coming together. As and this is all analog in your hand. This is real. in your hand. It is physical. It's limited to 250 copies. Wow. Uh, they're hand numbered. We put, we sign as many of them as we can, and we get to maybe some of the guest, you know, people also to sign here and there. At one point, we had Nikki Six sign uh, the edition when Randy and Nikki talked, uh, spoke about photography and sobriety, um, and so. It's just been a lot of fun for us. It's an outlet that we don't have otherwise. And there's no pressure for us to make money. Is it on a schedule? <laughs> it was twice a year. This year is one because Randy and Alex are super swamped. And then now I'm getting to be super swamped. Hey, they're swamped. on tour together right now. They should be. They are like on tour together. Enough. And we've been taking advantage of that. I just saw them last week to get things signed. We talked a lot of business, but they have also been doing, they, they're doing the biggest piece in this upcoming issue they interviewed together. I hope they got Nurgle to talk about something. Well, that's, that's what I'm hoping for, but I don't know by the time this comes well, he's out. Like, he's like, he's definitely, Nurgle's definitely the most interesting man in the world territory like he's just one of those guys he's a renaissance man yeah yeah and I uh yes yeah. so that's been discussed and maybe that will come together that's the idea my goal would be to speak to him especially about poland the catholic state mm -hmm. and the struggle within that and so you know that's that's something we like to talk about we don't want to talk to him about riffs we don't want to talk to somebody about that and that that's what music magazines are for so there's going to be a few twists in this new one as well and we really try to put a lot of bang in there for the buck because it's really limited and it's expensive to do, but it's a lot of fun for us. Yeah. And uh, there we go. And I believe we just got the knock. Yeah, I think we got the knock. Well, I th yeah. we're going to wrap it up here at top. Uh, Thank you so much for, for, for coming out and, and doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, man, I think this is a good one. I, mean, I think people are going to enjoy this. So. Th Thank you. Cut brother. out some of the crap and you know, it'll come together. Nicely. We're not cutting on anything. Everything goes in. Oh, all right. Wow. Okay. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, this is a double studio album because everything we're doing is fucking gold. Fuck yeah, bro. All right. Thank well, you, brother. Thank you, dude.
So that was the track Amendment from the first, God forbid, full-length album, Reject the Sickness, which was released in 1999, and which was the first track off the album and the first song that Tom probably heard from the band. And I wanted to play that because even to this day, I still think the, the power of that track and the way we open that record really holds up and has kind of a fire and, and intensity and, and some great production by, by Steve Evitz. Um, and it's, uh, gives you, you know, a lot of people who even were fans of God forbid, you know, may not have heard the entire catalog or where the band came from. So I just kind of wanted to play that and just give you, put you in the headspace of where, uh, someone might be who, who wanted to sign a band and how that sound might've affected them at that time in, in, in that era where, you know, I think what we were doing was pretty damn cool and pretty damn exciting anyway with that said i hope you guys enjoyed that conversation and definitely thank you for listening to the show um i had you know going back a couple weeks i had a big gap between episodes i think almost had two weeks i'm really trying to stay on schedule it is a little tough out here we have about a month left on this tour with five finger death punch and breaking benjamin and nothing more it's going great we're having a lot of fun it's exhausting it's hot but you know what i'm very 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 lucky um, I just found out that we're going to be touring essentially from, you know, between when we started the tour in April until basically the end of December, we're going to ha- only have about four or five weeks off in that whole time. So it's, this will have been the busiest stretch of touring I've ever done in my life. Um, but it's worth it. it. It is a sacrifice, you know, dealing with girlfriends and family and friends and, and, you know, it's a little bit of sacrifice to your own your own sanity. Um, to to be honest, there are certain things I think there is a it is not a you know it's difficult to come out of this a little bit unscathed and kind of maintaining your normalcy. Um, but that's part of the the game. You got you have to. I've been doing this long enough to realize. All right, what do I have to do to uh, maintain my kind of human sensibility? Um, and so I'm trying to do that, trying to work on it, uh, every day. If you see, if you see DOC acting a little fool, acting like a rock star, don't, don't be afraid to tell me to, uh, you know, get over myself. You know, it's probably, I might need to hear that from, from, from time to time. It's, it's difficult to do things like this and not be a little bit, uh, overly self involved. So I'm working on it, but at the same time. I'm also enjoying the position. This tour is insane. We're going out and playing in front of 10,000 plus people a, a night. And it's um, it truly is a blessing. So I'm going to stop rambling. Um, really appreciate uh, all the support for the show. Keep telling your fr- friends. Keep spreading the word. Please go on iTunes, rate and review the show. Is there anything else I need you to do? I don't know. I don't have anything. Guys, keep rocking. Keep rolling. Keep rocking in the free world and rolling in, you know, in the other in other places too, you know? And uh Mamba is out.
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.